It's time to awaken your inner traveler and zip around the world as money is sent to the people who rely on it. Welcome to Money Travels, presented by Visa. For my mom and my grandma, if I ever wanted to send them money, it was easy. I think that sending and receiving money in the Dominican Republic, it's like probably the number one thing that people do. But I can tell you in five years, two businesses, never once has that money not gone in within 24 hours. It is extraordinary. A lot of coffee producers live in abject poverty and you can't fault them. They're going to take the money they can get that day because they have to go feed their kids. Two business days in New York real estate is an eternity. Things come and go in split seconds. You have to have access to funds and you got to be able to act on it instantly. We are all connected. We have more ways to interact now than ever before. And it's never been easier to send and receive money to more places across the globe. So what's the invisible infrastructure that makes that possible? I'm Indre Viscontis, a neuroscientist, author, and host of Money Travels, presented by Visa. On this podcast, we follow the money as it zips around the world, helping us to survive and thrive. And we talk to the experts who are building the tools that will transform the next generation of money movement. Julieta needs to send money home to the Dominican Republic. Sarah wants to sell used books at local markets. Jay's clients need access to money fast, or else they might lose the apartment. And Ed has to pay his coffee farmers today so they can feed their kids tonight. Behind each of these interactions is an invisible infrastructure that moves money. To help us navigate this vast network, today we're talking to the global head of Visa Direct, Ruben Salazar. Ruben helped build this global money movement network, and he can speak to the remaining challenges and to the future of how money travels. So welcome to Money Travels, Ruben. Thank you, Indri. Thank you for having me here. So I want to start by taking you back to your childhood. And there's a purpose to this, so bear with me for a bit. But what was it like for you to grow up in El Salvador in the 1980s? I will say my childhood and my teenager years were surrounded by this 12-year civil war that was happening in the country. And I saw many of my close family members emigrating, traveling to other places to just find refugee or try to develop better living conditions for themselves. So a lot of struggles, not only for me, but for five, six million individuals living in El Salvador. And it was hard times going to school or going to a party or a stage of siege. It was kind of part of our everyday life. And that's the reality in which I grew up. And so when did you leave and where did you go first? I first left in 1992 to the University of New Mexico to study some postgraduate studies in mass communication and journalism. At Mm. that time, I was starting my career in journalism and that piece of education was very important to continue to grow. And I started to work as a news TV reporter in 1988, and I left that profession in 1993, 1994, more or less. And why? What changed your career path? The peace accords were signed in 1992, and at that time I was working for the presidency of El Salvador, for the equivalent of the White House. 
I was doing some mass media work for them. And after the peace accords were signed, I decided that it was time for me to shift careers and focus in the communication aspect of my formal education. So I did a migration to marketing at that time and started with advertising, a little bit of production. And suddenly I was working with big corporations doing marketing for them, like Citibank and some other big companies. I did the transition from journalism to marketing in about one or two years. Wow. When you started working for the banks, I imagine that a lot of the experiences you had growing up in El Salvador with all of this turmoil, that it must have influenced how money movement can play a role in people's lives. Can you tell me a little bit about your early experiences, how they influenced your view on how to get money to people who need it? I think I started to see a very clear correlation between access to banking and the alleviation of poverty. And that was a critical point of view from somebody who works in a bound, but tried to have an empathy for the type of customers that we're trying to serve. Closer to home, my older brother went to California in the early 80s, and I saw him sending money to my mom every month. I was trying to help his siblings and his family to get through because civil war doesn't recognize social income levels. Everybody gets affected and everybody is economically struggling. It doesn't matter where you are. And at that time, everybody was trying to understand there is high inflation. Dollars are a precious commodity in this Mm -hmm. market. So receiving dollars from outside was double or triple your salary in one day. It was an important aspect of making the living at that time. It still is in many countries. At the top of the show, we heard from Julieta. She's a 20-something from the Dominican Republic who works in New York and sends money back to her family. So I saw my mom going to and small banks and small agencies and all these places to collect the money that my brother used to send. And that was a great support for us at that time. And so I was like eight, nine years old, so I started to see the complexities of money movement very early. No? And when I started to work, my first job in a bank was for Citibank. And Citibank is a bank that is focused more in the high income level of the population. But I start seeing that these inefficiencies in money movement doesn't discriminate. Doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you have a high income or low income, the mm-hmm. um, fragmentation and the problem of sending money affects us all. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. From microeconomic point of view, of course, affects the poor families and the median income families more, you know, Mm -hmm. because of the fees, because of the cost at that time of moving money from one country to another. But the reality is that it affects us, everybody. Yeah, in fact, I read something that you had written in which you quoted some World Bank data saying that from 1990 to 2015, the global rate of extreme poverty, so living less than $1.90 per day, dropped on average one full percentage point per year. I'm quoting you, (laughs) quoting the World Bank, from nearly 36% to about 10.1%. And you wrote that one reason for this drop is the increased rate at which migrant workers in foreign countries can send money home to their families. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that and sort of what has enabled it to become easier and more efficient? That is absolutely correct. Let me use El Salvador as an example. El Salvador is a country with a population of about five to six million individuals. During the war, almost two million individuals left. They left to the United States, to Canada, to Nordic countries, to Australia. It was a complete diaspora because the violence was very difficult at that time. Those two million individuals started to send money back home because their aspiration was to move to provide better living conditions for their own family. Today, in El Salvador, almost 25% of the entire GDP depends on that diaspora. Wow. And they continue to send money to their home country. And it moves by generations. And so the leap from the poverty line to a better living condition is highly correlated to this massive migration for El Salvador. In 2000, because of this influx of dollars in the economy, in 2000, El Salvador actually dollarized the economy because hmm. at that time it was already like 10 or 15% of all the flows were coming in, in dollars. No? Hmm. And that gives you an idea. I mean, many countries like El Salvador goes through the same sort of cycle. No? Today, remittances and the volume of this financial aid is bigger than agriculture hmm. in terms of GDP contribution. That is telling you that it's not work, it's not jobs, it's not the local government policies that are changing the economic infrastructure of countries that depend on, on remittances to alleviate poverty or provide better economic conditions to their families. Even though today there are still obviously lots of parts of the world that are in strife, there's also a lot of migration that's happening now and going to happen even more so with climate change. So I imagine as the climate changes, there's going to be jobs in different parts of the world and we're going to have to send workers or people are going to have to go to those parts of the world to get the jobs and then send money home. I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you think about the future. I think we're going to continue to see a lot of transformation in terms of borderless working conditions. We are starting to see that. No? You may mm -hmm. be working from home in Uruguay, but working for a multinational mm -hmm. in Italy. And employment laws will continue to evolve. And so migrating to a, a different country may not be the real answer, but remote working without physical migration may be a thing to alleviate poverty in many low-income economies. Mm -hmm. I think the migration you are going to see here are more or less the same, you know, wars, national disasters, internal conflicts, and climate change will also contribute to that. During the flows in Honduras and Nicaragua or Puerto Rico, you start seeing a, a massive, I mean, number of people leaving their countries as well because their mm -hmm. land is destroyed. There is no way to have agriculture there, etc. Or when big factories close in one country and move to another, you start seeing people following the money, following the resources, following the income in order to continue to provide to their families. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue to see a lot of that. Money movement will be critical also because there are many other trends that are fueling the need for remote working or these conditions of independent contractors. Mm -hmm. As these platforms grow across markets, 
the need to change the way of this payroll relationship will demand a better money movement platform. Instead, you could provide your debit number and receive the payment directly to your Visa card. That simplicity will reduce costs because it's end-to-end digital and will promote better money movement ecosystem in the long run. I mean, I can see how promoting a better money movement ecosystem could drive the digital revolution. There was the tech 1.0 that happened in the early 2000s, and a lot of companies failed, and there was a big crash, I think in part because it wasn't easy. The security of, of money movement was not there yet, that infrastructure. So how has Visa Direct made this possible? There's just so many changes that have happened in the last two decades in terms of the security and the ease with which we can pay each other. What's the infrastructure behind this that has made it possible? As you know, we have been operating a very efficient payment network during the last 60 years. And we have been developing these two sides economy between the issuers of these credentials and who is accepting the credentials, which are the merchants. So right now we have probably the largest and the most ubiquitous global payment network on earth in Visa. So in one side, you will have big remitters like Western Union or big banks like Bank of America or JP Morgan trying to send money to individuals by leveraging the same credential that they have in their pocket. So Mm -hmm. they don't need to have additional bank account. They do not need to pay for a wire transfer. They will receive the transaction as a credit position directly in this instrument that they are so used to and they have been using during the last 50 years. That's the simplicity of the network. We are not recreating technology. We are repurposing credentials and repurposing technology. So instead of just pay in front of a merchant, you have the ability to receive the funds directly in the instrument that you are used to during all this year. So Ruben, we've been talking a lot about the sort of challenges or the differences of money movement in places like Latin America, but you've also spent time in Singapore. And are there parts of Asia or other parts of the world where cultural differences put up different obstacles for the money movement that Visa Direct facilitates? Well, I think Asia is a very interesting market and has been evolving organically into digital during the last 10 years. You have huge digital platforms in China. China were one of the first markets with huge adoption in terms of digital wallets. You have the Alipay, some other big players there that are providing not only financial services, but almost everything you can think of, it happens in the app. It's the first phenomenon of, of a super app happening in China. Mm. And you also have another aspect. You have one of the largest countries in terms of population in Asia. You have Indonesia, you have India, and you have China. And those are incredibly massive territories, but also very large number of individuals living in these markets. And solving for them, it is a matter of digital reach. Mm -hmm. And all of them are doing different exercises to reach, but it has been very organic. A lot of fintechs and a lot of government initiatives and some other private sector initiative has been 
making these markets very digitally oriented. I will say the penetration of digital in China is one of the best in the world. And with this demonetization effort that India went through like five or six years ago, more or less, they really transformed the way the economies are moving money. And they are making significant investment in the domestic markets to create better digital infrastructure. The problem with some of those is that most of these developments are for domestic transactions. Mm. So even though they have this sophistication in the domestic markets, they may not have all the connectivity with the world. So the challenge for us is how we are going to partner and to work with all these digital platforms that exist in these markets to make a connectivity between visas, architecture, in money movement, and the domestic platforms and the domestic wallets that exist there. But the penetration of digital in these markets is just impressive and very advanced in, in many ways. Yeah, so they're ready. They are absolutely ready. Yeah, I mean, I think just like in some ways, in parts of the world where there is more poverty, where there is less access to banking, cell phones made a huge difference in, in that people can carry around now these digital wallets. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is sort of the technical side of creating these digital wallets that make it possible for people to like not even necessarily have a bank account, but can still receive cash. Sort of what's the tech side behind that? A digital wallet is technically a container that records your economic power. <laughs> you can upload money to them, cash or any other digital form. So you can have it handy when you want to pay in front of a merchant or you want to send money to somebody else. They have eliminated the barrier of entry for many low-income families to actually participate in a bigger, larger digital economy by providing them this useful digital container to uphold these funds. Mm -hmm. And from there, they can perform commerce or they can transact with other individuals. Part of what we're trying to do with Visa Direct is to land the transaction not only in the typical credentials into a card number, but also into wallets. Now, so we are using the credential of that particular wallet to land the transaction that somebody in the US or in Europe or in so many other markets are sending to this individual. That will create a, an important reach because of these 1.4 and 1.7 individuals who do not have access to traditional banking and hence not access to a debit card or not access mm -hmm. to a bank account to land the transaction. And we're talking about almost $700, $800 billion of flows that are coming from many markets to provide this financial aid to 800 million individuals who are living around the world. So it's a massive reach. Yeah, and massive difference in these people's lives, too, I imagine. But there are still some places where it doesn't seem to be as seamless. So recently, my husband and I went to Argentina to celebrate our 15th wedding anniversary. And it didn't even occur to us that it would be difficult to pay for things with our phones, that we could use you know, Venmo or Cash Apps just as easily as we do anywhere else. 
And that just wasn't true. In Argentina, for various reasons, we were a bit stranded and there were places where people really wanted cash and we couldn't do the things that we wanted to do because we had no access to cash. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why was it so hard in places like Argentina to use these apps that make it seem so easy elsewhere in the world? I think the level of digitization country by country will continue to have some sort of disparity. It's based on how the financial system has been evolved during years. It's based on connectivity and based on the availability of these digital wallets in market. What is happening is in some developed markets, people may have access to a bank account or more sophisticated financial tools. But in order to land this transaction in places like Argentina or Bangladesh or India or Mexico, the recipient may not have access to the same sort of banking sophistication. So how we're going to make this ecosystem more interoperable is something that we dedicate a lot of time. That's why our effort to make this visa direct money movement facility more ubiquitous is very strong value proposition in the long term. That means that we have coverage with high banking population, individuals who have a bank but not a debit card, individuals who do not have a bank, not a debit card, but they have digital container to receive these funds. There is a massive reach and a massive footprint that will serve as a catalyst to serve more and more individuals and connect more and more senders and receivers. So it seems that the peer-to-peer transactions are becoming more efficient, but that B2B or business-to-business is slower to change. Is there a different approach that you're taking to make B2B transactions simpler and faster? I believe B2B will take some more time to solve. B2B generally requires some slow speed. A business is not dying to receive the funds immediately in a matter of seconds, in a matter of minutes. They have big layers and they can operate, you know, with credits, etc. But that is also, uh, is changing. Visa Direct is focusing in the retail size of the transactions. And we are trying to solve for immediacy because it makes a big difference for somebody who's waiting to pay for utilities or pay for the supermarket and is waiting for somebody in Spain, in UK or in the US to send that monthly allowance to be able to carry on with their lives. So there, I will say real time or near real time is critical, it's important, it needs to be part of the value proposition. When you send to your friends the payment for your last dinner party, I mean, they are expecting that immediately when you take your Uber back home. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's the reality of this space where Visa Direct is solving. And real time will become one of the largest changes in payments during the next three to five years is because we are facing a consumer that is looking for immediate rewards and immediate satisfaction 
and mm -hmm. they are used to these almost real-time living conditions. If they post something in Instagram, they wait in the screen until somebody put like, you know, because they want this instant gratification. But it's not only that, it's because if you are an Uber driver or you are a Lyft driver, as soon as you finish your, your work during the day, you want to get paid because you are providing a service to these companies. So how are you going to do it? And so real-time payments will become a real issue to create more dynamic economies. If you are an Uber driver and you don't receive your payment for all the service you provide during the day, and you are working with a very tight micro economy, you may not have the funds to put gas in your car and continue to provide the service. So real-time is critical. You've written that when you were growing up in El Salvador, people living in extreme poverty were defined as those who spend their daily purchasing power on food and still go to sleep hungry. But today, as you noted, the definition of poverty is really a function of daily income indexed to U.S. dollars. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the implications of changing this definition of poverty from something concrete and personal, like not having enough to eat, to something more abstract, like some amount of U.S. dollars. I think the World Bank changed that as part of the millennial goals to have a better metric to trace. You may not have income in countries like Vietnam or Cambodia, but you may have food because you are owner of a small parcel of agriculture. But that doesn't mean that you are struggling economically. I mean, mm. the reason that you have your own self-sufficient way of living or way to secure food, that is more on the food security point of view, but not from the defining the poverty line. So that's the reason why I believe the United Nations and the World Bank and many other big institutions get together to agree on how we're going to measure poverty going forward. And I think it's a more pragmatic way of seeing it because of these nuances of I may actually be able to secure food today, but that doesn't mean I have a cent in my pocket. Mm hmm Mm -hmm. And you don't worry about kids growing up now. Like my my kid the other day, you know, one of them wanted something and I said, you know, we just don't have the money for it. And so my four-year-old went and got my phone and said, it's in here. The money's in the phone. <laughs> Are there implications of like the fact that they don't actually see anything exchanging? It's so abstract. It is, but always money has never been an issue of physical ownership, you know. I think in the entire monetary mass, I believe a very small percentage is actually printed. You know, mm. everything is zeros and bytes in your checking, your savings account, your investment accounts. You never get to touch the money, you know. Right. And yeah. this invisible condition of money requires a lot of education, especially in, in developed markets. In the other markets, it's the other way around. How do I make this physical money into digital so I can use it better or I can protect mm. it better? So in both sides of the equation, financial education continues to be critical for highly digitized markets and to other markets where cash is still very dominant. Cash is still the king, I mean, in many ways. In Latin America, for example, I will say more than 70% of all the transactions and all the commerce is happening in physical cash. Mm. 
is not happening in cars or in digital instruments. So it is still a very large frontier and in a very large headroom for Visa to, to grow. So on Money Travels, we like to end each episode with some rapid-fire questions. So if you're ready, um, we'll get those going. What developing technology do you predict will change once again how money moves between people or businesses? Real time. What do you think you'll miss most when cash no longer exists? Nothing. <laughs> what do you find most annoying in money movement today? Long lines. What aspect of money movement is more complicated than most people think? Security. And can you predict the future of money movement with a single catchy phrase? Everywhere you want to be. That's great. Ruben Salazar, thank you so much for being on Money Travels. Thank you, Indre. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Money Travels. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow the show and leave a review so more people can find it. Until next time, I'm Indre Viscontis, and this has been Money Travels, presented by Visa. Visa.